How many of you did not pray as earnestly during the week of prayer as you did when we kicked the ball back to Joe Burrow with two minutes left in the fourth quarter and no wide receivers that knew the plays and a quarterback on one leg? But the Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl. Listen, next Sunday... Super Bowl Sunday, I hope you're going to wear your red. If you're a Bengals fan, you got some friends that have some red. Just ask them if you can borrow it this year for our Super Bowl Sunday. It's going to be a fun Sunday celebrating together. Um, hey, next Sunday, we kick off a brand new series back in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, called Broken People, Broken Sexuality, Broken Marriage, and the Gospel of Grace. We're going to dig in deep in the month of February. Six messages in Matthew chapter 19. Um, we will not in any of these six messages really teach on marriage, actually, because the context of the passage is broken marriages and broken people and broken sexuality and why things are that way. Um, but we will, in the midst of this series, pause and take kind of four sessions, two Friday night, two Saturday morning, what we're calling a marriage and relationship conference that we'd love to invite you to. Right now we're 50% full, so we got another 150, 200 couples that can still sign up if you're not signed up yet. We want to because this is not an overnight, open it up to couples who are engaged and couples who really believe you're moving towards engagement. We believe this will be great, very, very cheap premarital counseling for you. Uh, Pastor Daniel Floyd and his wife Tammy will be in, um, and we'll just be having a good time Friday night, two sessions, Saturday morning, two sessions, just leaning into what the Bible has to say about marriage. Danielle and I will also be releasing a podcast on our Activate platform this month called Intentional Marriage, just showing you how to do some real practical things to make your marriage a very, very intentional part of your life. But for the most part, the series is going to be talking about broken people, broken sexuality, broken marriages, and the gospel of grace, how we're, how we're all in those categories and how we all live in the gospel of grace. Um, so that starts next week. This week, we're wrapping up a five-week series in John chapter 15 called Thrive. We've stepped into a conversation in John 15 that began in John 13 in the upper room, finishes in John 17 in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is basically having this conversation with his disciples. I'm getting ready to go to heaven to be with the Father to prepare a place for you. I'll come back and get you, but while I'm on, in heaven and you're on earth, we need to learn how to be together. Either I'm going to come back to you or eventually you're going to come to me, but while I'm in heaven and you're on earth... We've got to learn how to do life together so that I can be in you, you can be in me, and together the kingdom can be in the world. And we've kind of walked through already four levels of how this is happening in John chapter 15. Today we're actually going to hit the last one by reading all the way through John 15, 1 through 17. So as we jump back in the text today, here's, if you have your Bibles open, here's what I want you to focus on. I want you to circle the word fruit every time we read it. We have focused on the word remain. Today, we're going to focus on fruit. Here's what happens if you remain in Jesus. John 15, 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be more fruitful. So there's three right there. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that your joy may be, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you, and I appointed you, so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So in these 17 verses, the word remain is found 11 times. Actually, in the Greek, it's 12 because we skipped one in the English. Clearly, the main idea of this passage is that we need to live in relationship with Jesus. 
but the word fruit is found nine times. So what we find in this passage is that if you remain in Jesus, if you learn how to walk with Jesus daily, if you learn how to pray and fast, if you learn how to live in spiritual community, if, if you're willing to live a life of serving, like if you remain in the things that Jesus has asked you to do, your life is just going to have fruit. Almost every time the Bible says you'll remain in Jesus, the Bible says you'll have fruit. So these two go together, remain in fruit. What we're going to hit today, I call the sweet spot or the grapes of spiritual abiding. What are the, what's the grape zone of spiritual living? It's this. It's the sweet spot where the kingdom of God in me begins to impact the kingdom of God in the world. I call this the grape zone. We've been learning about vines up until this point, but now we're focused on what is growing on the vine, from the vine, that others can take part of. So we're moving today from the vine to the grape zone. Now we're in clusters of grapes. And the grape zone spiritually is that sweet spot spiritually where what God is doing in you through your relationship with Jesus begins to impact what God is doing in the world through the kingdom of God. So we've been looking at this graphic every week in January, this Thrive graphic that shows us that everything we do in life is impacting us in one of two ways. Either life is impacting how we view Jesus or how we're living with Jesus is impacting how we experience life. But as we get to this fifth artery of how we remain in Jesus so that the kingdom of God can remain in the world, what we're going to realize is this is the artery that not only allows our life to experience Jesus, but this is the artery that allows all of our world to experience who Jesus is and what Jesus does. It's this fifth artery of generosity, and it's the one we're going to talk about today. As we begin to talk about generosity, just two points of generosity where our relationship with Jesus begins to overflow from our life and impact the kingdom of God in the world. We're going to learn, number one, that God's mission has come to me so that it can flow through me. We're going to learn as we read through John chapter 15, almost every time the Bible says remain, it says fruit. We're going to learn that God's mission has come to me, not just for me, but so that it can flow through me. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you are going to bear fruit. Jesus says, if you stay close to me, things are going to come out of your life that will be useful to others. I do not just flow to you, I flow through you. Have any of you ever lived in a house where the basement flooded? I've had it happen three years and nearly 25 years as a homeowner. The first two times, my sump pump quit working. So the thing that was supposed to take the water from the base of the house to the outside of the house to get it away from the house stopped working. Once the power went out one time, the battery went dead because the sump pump was too old. And both of those times, the basement filled up with water. The third time, the sump pump was working. It was getting water to where it was supposed to get water. But have any of you in a particularly rainy season ever attached like a PVC pipe or a long piece of kind of corrugated metal from your like... From where the sump pump dumps the water outside, kind of way further out in your yard to get the water away from your house. Anybody ever done something like that? So the third time, we had something like that going on. And that pipe slightly got shifted to where it was going uphill a little bit, and it filled up with dirt and grass and sand. And even though the sump pump was kicking water to the outside of the house, what was on the outside of the house was not allowing that water to flow through. And it just backed right up into the house. You need to know your spiritual sump pump is not broken. The Holy Spirit has not lost power. And he is continuing to flush things from the Holy Spirit of God in heaven to your heart for the purpose of those things flowing out of your heart into the world to where they're supposed to go. But some of you, like like your heart valve is clogged up, And like what God's trying to do in you has no place but to back up because you have no place to release into the world what God is doing through you. So we learn that God's mission continually comes to me, but for the purpose of flowing through me. Look at verses 12 through 14 and how John says Jesus laid this out. Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So somebody say friends. So we learned last week that God only had two friends, 
at least only two people that he called friends in the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis to Malachi, Abraham and Moses. If you know anything about Abraham and Moses, the question we would have to ask ourselves is, did God's blessing come to them for them, or did God's blessing come to them to work through them for the world? To them or through them? Well, there's no doubt for those of us who know a little bit about the Bible that God's friends in the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses, God's blessing came to them so it would work through them. Now, here's what I found interesting. I was listening to the Bible recap like a lot of you guys have been doing. And a couple weeks ago, Tara Lee Cobble was talking about the word the patriarchs. And she said, in case you don't know who that is, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the three people that like God blessed with this covenant that he would bless the world with. The patriarchs are Abraham and Isaac and Joseph. I thought it was interesting as I was listening to that, thinking about some of my message content, that God never called Isaac and Jacob his friends. And he didn't. Anywhere in scripture, he didn't call them his friends. But I knew that he had given each of them the Abrahamic covenant. I knew he told Abraham he was going to bless him. I knew he repeated that covenant to Isaac, and I knew he repeated it to Jacob. What I did not know, because I hadn't studied it, was, God, when you gave the covenant of your blessing to Isaac and Jacob, did you also tell them that you were giving it to them so that they could bless others? Did they get it like Abraham did? And lo and behold, when you look in Scripture, Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you. So that you can be a blessing. Genesis 26, God tells Isaac, I'm going to bless you and you will be a blessing. Genesis 28, God tells Jacob, I'm going to give you this so you can bless others. thought, yep, he sure did. Every time God told one of the Old Testament patriarchs, here's my blessing for you. He said, here's my blessing through you. So I would say it this way. I've said it before. It's one of my favorite phrases in Christian ministry. Followers of Jesus are blessed to bless. Like, that's the story of how, of how and why God sends blessing. If you remain in me and I remain in you, something's going to come out of you. If you receive my blessing, you are going to bless other people. Abraham, I'm going to bless you, make sure you bless others. Isaac, I'm going to bless you, make sure you bless others. Jacob, I'm going to bless you, make sure you bless others. Moses, I'm going to call you out so you can bring everyone out. I'm going to bless you to bless others. So the blessing of God isn't as much to us as it is through us. And it's interesting. This is such a great picture of kind of the two main bodies of water that you see in Israel when you look at a map of Israel. The headwaters of the Jordan River start on Mount Hermon, and they really start from the rain and snow melt that comes down Mount Hermon and kind of flows through that crevice that separates Israel from the country of Jordan and the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Galil, which is what they call northern Israel, is one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth. If you have a picture in your head of what Israel looks like and you've never been there, when you drive into the Galil, you're going to think, holy cow, I feel like I'm in the Midwestern part of the United States. It's one of the most plush locations on planet Earth. Because the waters of the Jordan River flow into the Sea of Galilee, it is a beautiful place. If, if you could throw a dart at a map and spend a week of vacation anywhere on planet Earth, go stay a week on the shores of the Sea of Galilee with your Bible, promise you it'll be the best week of your life. It's a beautiful place. The Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee and then it dumps out of the Sea of Galilee and makes itself all the way down to the Dead Sea. It flows into the Dead Sea and it stops. Living water goes in, nothing comes out, And somewhere in between, it becomes totally useless. It is the most polluted. Not only can't you drink it, you can't go under it. It's not really good on your skin to be in it very long. It's one of the most polluted, most useless places on planet Earth. It is so useless, they named it the what sea? Yeah, the Dead Sea. Like, there's just nothing that happens there. That really is a picture of two Christians. One who takes in the living water of Jesus and uses it, lets it flow out of their life. Flows in, flows out, waters everything around it. Trust me, if you were to choose between living in the Galil, where the Jordan River is taken to water everything around it, or the Judean desert, where the Jordan River is still flowing, just not as much, you would always choose the Galil. Like those are pictures of Christians. The Christian who takes in the living water and continually is giving it out is a Christian that has life and gives life to everyone. But that same Jordan River living water flows into the Dead Sea. You say, what's the difference? It doesn't kick it out the other end. The ingredients underneath the Dead Sea take in without giving out, and it just creates this toxic dead thing. There are too many Christians who Sunday after Sunday take in living water and don't use it to water anything. 
between one Sunday and the next. So the blessing of God comes to us, so the blessing of God can come through us. Look at verse 13. We learned this last week. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. I love what we learned about this verse. Christians aren't called to die for one another as much as we're called to live for one another. Jesus said, I'll die for you. I'm not asking you to love each other to the degree that I love you to, but with the heart that I've loved you with. Christians really aren't called to die for each other as much as they are called to live for one another, which is actually harder. Because if you were called to die for someone, you'd have to do that once, and then it'd be done. But if you're called to live for someone... Well, you kind of got to do that every day while you're living. So actually, that's harder than dying for someone. It takes more effort. And when we look through the New Testament, we see that the primary areas that Christians in the New Testament leveraged their life to live for one another were in the areas of their time, their talent, and their treasure. They leveraged their time, their talent, and the treasure to share their lives with each other. We see it in Acts 2, we see it in Acts 4, we see it in Acts 5, we see it in Acts chapter 6, we see it in Philippians chapter 2, we see it in um, the book of Philemon. Like all over the New Testament, we see where Christians would give of their time and their talent and their treasure to serve one another and to serve what God was doing kind of in and throughout the world through his church. Now, we've talked about these first two in the last two weeks. We've said that if you want to thrive in, in, uh, in your relationship with Jesus in 2023, that you're going to have to be willing to give some of your time to live in spiritual community. If you've gotten to the point where you don't need spiritual community, that means you need to give your time to help others live in spiritual community. But no one is exempt from that. Love others as I have loved you, not because you need it, but because we need it. We've talked about leveraging talent. That was last week. We said that we're supposed to lay down our life to serve one another. We had dozens of you in here last week that were like, you know what, in 2022, didn't do that a lot. 2023, I want to get better. Help me get engaged in serving people. The third area we're going to talk about today, but we're going to talk about it through the lens of a simple question. And here's the question. Are you going to share your grapes or are you going to keep them all for yourself? Like, are you going to share your grapes or are you going to keep them all for yourself? Because if you stay close enough to Jesus and really begin to thrive spiritually, you're going to begin to produce fruit. The question is, are you going to keep all that for yourself and put it in your fridge? Or are you going to share some with somebody else? Are you going to eat all your grapes? Or are you going to share some with the world? Because if you're walking with Jesus, you got fruit. The question is, is it all yours? Are you going to share it with the world? As we look at what we're learning today about thriving spiritually, here's the second point. Leveraging our lives by living generously is an evidence that I'm thriving spiritually. Please notice the word and. I didn't say it is the evidence. I said it is an evidence. Here's what I find interesting in nearly 25 years of ministry. I have seen people thrive in this area of generosity that are not thriving spiritually. It's an interesting thing. So have you. Maybe you've lived through a season like that. Like I have seen people. That's why I didn't say it's the evidence you're thriving spiritually. I think it's an evidence that you're thriving spiritually. I think it's possible. I've been trying in my head to realize, why are there some people who give so faithfully, who don't read their Bible, who don't pray, who don't serve, who don't go to small groups? Like, how can you get one right and get others so wrong? And just in my head, I thought, people must have been taught their entire life um, that what they give the church is more important than what they give Jesus. So they have thought, this is really, really important. The other things are not so important. This whole series has not been about what you give the church, it's about what you give Jesus. So I've seen people who thrive in generosity who aren't really thriving spiritually. I have never seen people who thrive in the other four areas who also don't live generously. I don't know anyone that reads their Bible, that prays, that has a heart to serve, that lives in spiritual community, that like also doesn't live generously. Because Jesus says if you're doing those four things, you grow fruit, more fruit, much fruit, fruit that will last. So you need to know if you aren't a generous individual today, but you're planning on leaning into these four areas, you will become a generous individual. And I would say this, if you're thriving in generosity but not the other areas, you got to ask yourself, like, why do you feel like you can check one box and not have to do anything else to live in relationship with Jesus? So leveraging my life by living generously is an evidence that I'm thriving spiritually. Jesus actually said what comes out is evidence of what's in. If you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 17, if you don't, you don't have to turn there, but you might write down the reference. Jesus says, um, hey, you want to know what's inside someone, see what's coming out of someone. Want to know what's inside, see what comes out. Where does he say that? Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this, by their fruit, you'll recognize people. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear good fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you're going to recognize them. Jesus says you will learn to see what's on the inside by what comes out on the outside. It's just that obvious. You will learn to see what's on the inside by what comes out on the outside. But Jesus would also say as we work our way through the New Testament, you will learn who is in charge of the inside by what comes out on the outside. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives this great foundational verse of what Christianity is to talk about who and what controls your heart. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says what comes out on the inside tells you what's going on on the inside. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul will say the exact same thing. He'll say, you can tell who really, who really understands what Jesus has done for them. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, Christ's love compels us. Because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and was raised again. So Christianity 101, 2,000 years ago in the early church was this. My life is not about me anymore once I become a follower of Jesus. Like Paul's like, this is, what, this is how Christians think. Christians think because Jesus died for me. I now have given him my life, and I don't live for me. He died for me, so I died to myself, so now I want to live for him. Christ died for all, that those who follow him should no longer live for themselves. My life's just not about me anymore. Now it's about the one who died for me and was raised again. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that your Christian spiritual life won't be full, won't be abundant, won't be impactful. Jesus said in John 10, 10, he's come to give you life, and life to the fullest. But listen, having a better life is not the goal of Christianity. It's the opportunity of Christianity. Let me say it again because some of you haven't put that together yet. Having a better life is not the goal of Christianity. It's the opportunity of Christianity. So Jesus says, if you will die to yourself and to begin to live for me, that will change things in your life spiritually. Then you will be ready to share your life with the world. The purpose of me changing your life spiritually is not just for you. It's not just to you. I want to change your life spiritually so I can work through you. Christianity is not just about you. It's massively about you. But it's about you in a way that it can flow through you. That's what Paul's trying to say. What's interesting is that the early church, when they were taught about living generously... They base their entire foundation of sharing their time and their talents and their treasure on Jesus and his generosity. Just one page over in my Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul's teaching the church at Corinth that they should give and why they should give and how they should give. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the foundation of why Christians live generously is because of what Jesus did. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What is Paul saying there? Paul said Jesus knew that what he gave would give other people life. So while it made him a little more poor, it made someone else way richer spiritually. So the reason Christians share their life, even though we might not have a lot to share, we share the little that we have so someone else can have a lot of Jesus. Amen? Like, that's the message of giving in Scripture. We give because it brings life. Now, I love, I don't want to say I love. I, I shouldn't love, but the unhealthy side of me loves to have spiritual conversations with people who don't know Scripture. Um, because every now and then someone will say, you know, giving, giving offerings, that's really more of an Old Testament thing. I'm really more of a New Testament Christian. I'm really more of a, you know, like not the law, live by grace. Like all the stuff about giving, that's in the Old Testament. I'm really, like a, I'm really like a New Testament Christian. And I always say, I am so glad that you have said that. Because if we're reading the same New Testament, in the Gospels, we actually see five levels of New Testament giving. And you're right. Christians should practice those rather than Old Testament giving. What are the five levels of giving in the New Testament? In Luke 21, we meet someone who gave all. A poor widow who gave all that she had to live on. 
In Luke chapter 19, we meet a man named Zacchaeus who gave half. Look, Lord, I give half of all my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone, I'll give them four times what I have taken. We meet in Mark chapter 14 a woman who gave a lot. Here's what I mean by a lot. She gave an expensive jar of perfume that was worth a year's wages. In Matthew 23, Jesus talks about giving 10%. He tells the Pharisees, you give 10% of your spices, you're so legalistic in your giving, but you don't help poor people. You should do both. Give a tenth and help poor people. And then there are also people who give nothing. So I know when somebody gets into this generosity conversation and they're like, oh, I'm not an Old Testament giver. I know they got three ways to give in a really positive way or they're saying I give nothing. These are the five levels of New Testament gospel giving. Now, Paul would also say in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you should give what you feel led to give, not begrudgingly. God loves a cheerful giver. But when we look at people who've been impacted by Jesus and the result is an offering, it's all, it's half, it's a lot. It's at least 10% plus serving the poor or it's absolutely nothing. Now, here's what I know. Followers of Jesus are generous people. Generous hearted people. I would say we are theologically generous, and here's how I know that. Maybe not practically, but theologically. If I stood up today and said, last year, we gave $630,000 away to global missions, community outreach, and multiplying ministry and church planting. This year, we're going to choose instead to invest in a fleet of golf carts so that we can get from the far parts of our parking lot closer to the front doors. Um, We're not going to give any of the offering away. We're going to keep it all for ourselves. Every one of you theologically would say, shame on you. Now, practically, that may be how you manage your finances. But theologically, if you're a follower of Jesus, you would say, that's not right. Jesus, Jesus' followers should be giving what they have to help people. So practically, you might not be doing anything. But I'm telling you, our hearts... When, the day I stand on the stage and say, we're going to go from 15% to 20%, everybody's going to cheer. Why? Because everybody thinks that's what Christians should do. Theologically, we know that followers of Jesus are generous people. Practically, we struggle to get there. Why? Why would there be a category of Jesus followers who give nothing? Great question. Jesus actually answers that question. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a little parable about... Somebody trying to like honor, serve, follow God who's not generous. We learn some things about being theologically aware of generosity, but practically absent in our practice of it. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. He then goes on to tell a story, and here's the parable. A farmer had such an abundant harvest that when he got all of it into his barns, he had some left over, and his barns were full. And instead of giving away the leftover, he said, tear down the barns, we'll build bigger barns, I'll be able to keep it forever. And in the middle of that, pro- in the middle of that process, he died. And Jesus said, what a fool. He doesn't get any of it. And neither does anyone else. Like I gave him enough for him and enough to share. And he didn't get to use his and he didn't share any of it. What a fool. So Jesus says this in verse 21. This is how it's going to be with whoever stores up things for themselves but isn't rich towards God. Like there are going to be some people I give them what they need and I give them extra so they can share it. And they're going to use it all on themselves. And Jesus said like that's a foolish way to live life spiritually. He uses a phrase, this is the only time he uses this phrase to deal with sin in scripture. He uses the phrase, watch out, watch out, exclamation point, watch out. What this tells us is we won't see greed unless you're looking for it. Jesus doesn't say, watch out, you might commit adultery. It's like, no, we know when that's coming. Um, watch out, you might murder someone. No, we know when that's coming. Uh, watch out, you might gossip. It's like, no, we know we're doing it. Jesus is like, watch out. You won't even know when you're like struggling with greed. And, and by the way, Jesus defines greed as spending all your money on you instead of investing any in the kingdom. So I want to use his definition, not you love money. But he defines greed as using everything that he has given you for yourself instead of leveraging any of it for the kingdom. So watch out and because he says there's all kinds of greed. So I think it's really important to know what type of greed might be hindering your generosity. For those of you who have a theology of generosity, churches should help, churches should help more. Christian, let's go from 15 to 20%. Man, we're trying, can't wait. 
For those of you who would say, if we came in and said, hey, we're going to take the offering today, and we, for the, like, we gave away money for 11 years, we'd like to keep it all for the next 11 years, that would impact some of your giving. Like, oh, I don't know. We have a theology of generosity, but we don't practically give. Why? There might be a certain type of greed that's hindering us. So let me give you three types of greed that I've learned over 25 years talking to people spiritually that keep Christians with a the theology of generosity from engaging in giving. I would say the first type of greed is stuff. Is stuff. What, is that, what does that mean? Um, the vast majority of people who become followers of Jesus as adults have never heard that they're supposed to live generously. And when they hear it, they want to, but they've already bought too much stuff. Amen? It's like, that is like, I love this concept. I spent all my money. I already spent all my money on stuff. I have so many bills. I make this much. I actually spend this much and use a little bit of credit card. Like, I believe in giving. I don't have any money. I bought too much stuff. That's one level of what Jesus would call greed. I spent all my money on myself. I didn't leverage any for the kingdom. I think mostly new Christians struggle with this one because you, like, you literally have a, you have a finance problem. You already spent your money. You, like, I want to give. I don't have any money. Um, that's one level. I think the second level a lot of mature Christians live in, especially financially responsible Christians, I think the second level of greed is security. This says I've got everything I need and a little extra, but I'm putting that away for my future because I've got to make sure to take care of myself. Man, that phrase is dangerous theologically. That you think you're in charge of taking care of yourself. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible teaches great lessons about stewardship and saving and investing and how much you should save and invest. But there are a lot of people who have a theology of generosity. We should give without a practice of generosity. Not because you don't have any money, but you're afraid if you give away money, you'll never get it back. You'll ne- you won't have enough for yourself if you share with God. It literally is lacking trust in the heart of God. I think many mature Christians, especially those who are financially responsible, live in this area. I would like to give and I'd like to give more but money is my security. This really is. And I've got some plans, and I want to hit those plans. So once I'm taken care of, I promise, once I get everything I need and I build bigger barns, I promise the rest then I'm going to give. Jesus said, that's a foolish way to think. You, you, don't even know, you don't even know you're going to live long enough to use all that. So give while you go. I think the third area of greed, um, which I call stewardship disappointment, you only have if you've grown up and been around church a really long time. I think there are a lot of Christians who have a theology of generosity who've stopped the practice of generosity because at some point in their life they've given to a church or a nonprofit ministry, they've been disappointed, and they've thought, I'm not going to waste my money on that anymore. Um, I have lived through this level of greed. Probably anyone who's ever gone to church for a while and has given has lived through this level of disappointment. I gave... I just didn't like how they were spending the money, so I stopped doing that. What you got to realize is not only are there generations of people with that story, there's actually one very specific book in the Bible written to this group of people, level three. We read the last book of the Old Testament. It's called Malachi. Let me set it up for you, and then I'm going to read a few verses for you in Malachi. Malachi was the last book probably of the Old Testament written. Let me give you a few dates. If you're history people, you might jot these down. Um, In 586 BC, the city and the temple of Jerusalem were torn down. 516 BC, 70 years later, that temple and the foundations of the temple were rebuilt under the ministry of uh, a governor named Zerubbabel. 516 BC. People kind of laid the foundation, really didn't get engaged in finishing the temple a whole lot. Took some prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to come and Zechariah to tell them to finish the temple. In 458 BC, uh, kind of a, a priest, a teacher named Ezra came back to Jerusalem and taught the people, okay, now you got the building, here's how to use it to worship God. In 445 BC, 13 years later, a guy named Nehemiah would come rebuild the city. So just put the dates together in your head with me. 586, the temple's torn down. 516, it's rebuilt. 458, Ezra teaches them how to worship. 445, uh, um, Nehemiah makes the city safe. 
But then in about 425 to 415, so about 100 years after the temple was restored, Malachi comes and he writes a book. And here's his book. The people of Israel have lost trust in the temple. They've seen it fall apart before, so they're done giving their money to it. Malachi starts by talking to the priest. Actually, he starts by summarizing the situation. Um, People of Israel, why are you giving me less than your best? Why are you not giving at all? Got to do better. Then in chapter 2, he says this to the priest. You priest have quit serving me because the people aren't giving. You've said if they're not going to give, I'm not going to serve. Priest, you should know better. You don't serve me because of what people give. You serve me because of what I gave. You need to serve me whether or not people are giving at all. Then he goes to the people in Malachi 3. And he says, you need to keep giving. Regardless of what this temple's gone through in the past, your giving is not to the temple. Your giving is towards me. And you are short-circuiting something in your relationship with me by letting this place distract you from what I've called you to do. That is where in Malachi chapter 3, we read these verses that maybe have been preached to you your entire life about what you're supposed to give and how you're supposed to give. You have to understand the context of these verses. And I want you to realize how many times God says the words me and you. In Malachi 3.8, God says, will a mere mortal rob God? Remember, he's already told the priest, get back to work. Stop basing your ministry on people's giving. Now he tells the people, stop basing your giving on people's ministry. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, to see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there won't be room enough to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. God says, your giving has nothing to do with the temple or what they're doing with it. Your giving has to do with your relationship with me, and my blessing is also not going to run through that temple. My blessing is going to come straight to you. So this is a me and you thing. So for those of you who have withheld your generosity from what God is doing in his kingdom because of stewardship disappointment, let me first say, I get it. Let me second say, when you stand before God, he's not going to buy it. Why'd you stop giving? Well, God, they took my money and built this massive, like, television in the room. (laughs) Jesus never had a television. I just don't think I can give to church to have stuff like that. Okay. God says, you're not giving to churches. You're giving to me. Like, let me deal with church. Like, you're giving, you're, giving to, you're giving to me. Listen, when you start thinking about what you're giving and what you're giving for rather than why you're giving or who you're giving to, I'm telling you, like, you're in, you're in this zone of spiritual warfare. I'm just telling you, you're going to have to have a conversation with Jesus one day about why you stopped. When you start thinking about your giving in terms of money rather than ministry, How much did that cost? How much did that cost? How much did that cost? How much does table cost? When you start thinking about your giving in terms of money, rather than that's going to hold a Bible and people are going to hear the word of God and the word of God transforms life because faith comes by hearing, but hearing comes from the word of God. Like when you start thinking about money rather than ministry, I'm just telling you, you're not wrong, but you're like, you're in the zone of spiritual warfare. And like God is saying, I'll take care of the priest. I'm asking you directly. How come vertically? You've stopped believing that you should give towards me and my kingdom. You know, like, you say, Christian, why are you preaching this message? One, because I believe it's in the text in John chapter 15. But really, I have three primary motivations for giving this message. One, for the, for the people who live and practice generosity and who are making a massive difference in the world because the kingdom of God in you is beginning to impact the kingdom of God in the world I just want this message to encourage you. I can't tell you how many times after I preach a message like this, somebody who believes in giving has been blessed by giving and is blessing other people through giving. He's been like, thank you so much. Sometimes I wonder if anyone knows or cares or if this is still a thing. It's still a thing, so thank you. Second reason I'm giving this message. There are a lot of Christians who stuff security and stewardship disappointment 
has, has stopped this fruit in your life. And you don't need more than a reminder to think, you're right. I don't have to beat you over the head. Like, you've already made the decision. We need to re-engage in this. Third reason I'm giving this is because new Christians don't even know they're supposed to do it. We have a lot of people in our church who have never read the Bible before, and they expect me to tell them how Jesus would want them to live, and like this is in the Bible. This is my responsibility. I actually only have three financial responsibilities to God. Um, I have a responsibility for Danielle and I. Every dollar that we've ever received since we've been married, I believe, and let me, let me say this carefully, I believe she and I have a responsibility to give the first 10% of that to the local church that we are attending that's doing ministry to our family um, for like our entire life. I don't believe that I have to do that in order, in order to earn God's righteousness um, any more than I believe that we have to keep the Ten Commandments to go to heaven. I believe the only reason we're righteous before God is because of Jesus. But I believe like most of what God said in the Old Testament, he means and I believe it's really good practice for life. So like I don't give 10% so I can be holy before God. I give 10%... Because like Abraham and Isaac before, like there was even a Mosaic law, we're given 10%. It's like that's what worship looks like. Every person in the Bible you admire, every person in the Bible you admire gave 10% of their income as a worship offering to God. All of them. Like everyone from Abraham forward, this is how they worshiped. I want to be like them. I want to be like the, I want to be like the guys in the Bible. That's why I do that. So I believe I'll stand accountable to God one day to say this is how, this is what I believe financially and this is how I worship you. Secondly, I believe as a pastor, because I teach the concept of tithing, that I am responsible to you, according to Scripture, to make sure to take the first 10% of what you give and not keep it at our church, but give it away. Because I think for a pastor to teach that the people should give 10% without also realizing that that whole concept also told the priest to give 10% of the 10% that came in away, I I think we could be hypocritical or short-sighted if I tell you to give 10% and then I don't give 10% of all of it. So I believe God's going to ask me, did you give 10% away? And listen, I hope Pastor Scott goes first or goes with me because I won't know the answer to that question without him. He's like the finance guy. <laughs> Christian, did you give 10% of everything that came, away, came into Journey? Did you give it away in ministry? I'd be like, Scott, did we do that? And Scott would say, yes, we did that. And then, like, we, and then we would be good. The third reason I'm giving this message is because the Bible commands young preachers to teach young Christians to live generously. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the greatest... Mentor of young preachers in the Bible. Paul is speaking to his young apprentice, Timothy. And he says, Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age that they may take hold of the life That is truly life. So I think one day I'm going to stand before God and he's going to say, Christian, did you live generously towards me in a way that you believed captured my heart? And I'll say, yeah, Danielle and I worked really hard to do that. And I think he's going to say, as a pastor of a church, did you take the first 10% of every offering that came in and did you invest that out instead of spending it on your own local congregation? I'll say, yeah, God, we worked real hard to do that. And then I think he'll say, Christian, as a preacher of the gospel, did you teach new Christians that this is what the Bible says? And because of days like today, I'll be able to say, yeah. Yeah, I did that. For those of you who want to engage, and not everyone will, but for those of you who do, your journey just begins with some baby steps. So let me give you four as we close. In the final area of what we believe it takes to thrive spiritually, fruit, 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 more fruit, more fruit, much fruit, fruit that will last. Let me give you four baby steps for your generosity journey. Baby step number one, I want you to work to understand the motivation you have for generosity. I want you first and foremost to search your heart. In just a minute, we'll take communion, and you'll get a chance to ask yourself some of these questions. Why do I give? Why don't I give? I think there's three levels that will tell you something about your heart. I say it this way. I think um, a heart of gratitude and a heart that wants to help will be very easy to see. See, I, I say gratitude tips and the heart helps. What does that mean? When, when the offering bucket goes by and you think, God's been good to me, and you give $20, you give $100, um, when you start, every time you get paid, right now, a $100 check, you're saying, God's been good to me. You can gauge whether your heart has gratitude by when you have money if you want to invest some of it in the kingdom. And I think you can tell your heart is a heart that wants to help when you hear about a need and you say, hey, let's give something to that. Not even to the church. Tornado blows through a town and you're like, got to donate to the Red Cross. I, I think you can gauge them. My heart wants to help 
My heart is really grateful by how you give. Um, I think the second level about your heart is you will know if your heart trusts God and is obedient to God when you get near that 10% level, that word that the Bible calls tithe. Because then you're given enough money that you could pay some other bills. Then you're given enough money that you could have some retirement. And you're saying, I believe the Bible says that worship, one of the ways we worship is by giving 10% away. And um, I trust if I do that, God will take care of me. So I think trust and obedience lives in that tithe area. And I think when you get above that, I would say faith really tests. Faith really tests. Journey's living in the faith zone. You say, wait, wait. You said you give 10% away. I thought our church gave 15% away. We do give 15. Our goal by the time, Lord willing, I'm done here is that we'll give away 30. We're trying to figure out how do we get from 15 to 30? Because we want to live in faith. We believe you cannot outgive God. We believe one of the ways to unleash the blessing of God in your life is to give. So as an organization, we want to give. So work to understand the motivation of your heart. Why do you give or not give? Secondly, you say, okay, I know where I am. Number two, I want you to begin to give a consistent percentage of your income as a step of obedience and growth. When you really begin your generosity journey, the Bible usually talks about it more in terms of percentage than amount. Because God wants everyone to give, uh, sacrifice the same, but not give the same. So here would be my challenge in this. If in 2022 you gave nothing, in 2023, give 1%. Just do the math. The average income in Lee Summit, Googled it this morning for this message, average annual income in Lee Summit for a single household, $43,000. Give 430 bucks if you're a single adult. Average combined married household, $94,000. If you're a couple coming to our church, you didn't give a dollar last year, give $940 this year, give 1%. If last year you gave 1% or 2%, here would be some baby steps for you. If you gave less than 3% last year, try to double it this year. If you gave two, give four. If you gave three, try to give six. I think the jump might be too much if you're above that. So if you gave nothing, give 1%. If you gave 1% to 3%, double that. If you gave over 4%, split the difference between 4 and 10. So if you gave 4, try to give 7. If you give 6, try to give 8. If you gave 8, give 9. Because all of a sudden now you're you're making a bigger jump financially. But just just begin to say, God's been good to me. And one of the evidences that I'm thriving is I got some fruit. I don't want to eat all my fruit myself. Baby step number three, begin to budget your life for 90% plus blessing rather than 100% plus debt. I've lived in both, and one of them is far more uncomfortable than the other. Amen? Most of us budget our lives this way. I make this much, and I spend a little extra, and I'm trying to figure out how to get out of debt. Love to give. I've got too much stuff. No, no, no. Budget your life for 90% of what you bring in. Give 10, let the blessing of God carry the gap rather than just spending everything on yourself in greed. And number four, here's your final baby step if you've done those. Make a prayerful commitment to begin giving 10% of your income and offering as soon as possible. For you, it might be 10 years. It might be 1% a year for 10 years. Okay, start showing God you're serious. By the way, for those of you who have done all four of those, Keep being faithful. In Philippians 2.17, let's get back to grapes and then we'll wrap up. Philippians 2.17, Paul tells Timothy, he said, man, I'm at the end of my life. And he said, I pray that my life is poured out as a drink offering on the altar of everything that Jesus has already done. What was the drink offering? It was that little jug of wine inside the tabernacle that once the offerings were totally kind of sacrificed and laying on the last thing they would do squeeze every last drop out of the grape Paul said I'm praying that God would squeeze every last drop of fruit out of me before I'm done I'm praying God would squeeze every last drop of fruit out of me before I am done I'm praying the same thing for Danielle and I and I'm praying it for our church and on Vision Sunday it's one of those days where we celebrate how God squeezed our church last year. We had an incredible, what I call, grape harvest in 2022. As I think about this series, our Sunday services really are the vine. What happens outside this room are the grapes of our church. Sunday services are the vine. 
What happens outside this room of the grapes? When you look at the areas of our core beliefs and what God did through who you were in the grape zone. Last year, you already heard Pastor Scott say $630,000 invested in the community impact, global outreach, multiplying ministries. 11 years in as a church, we've surpassed now $3 million. And we're getting to the point where we'll be near a million dollars a year headed forward very soon. Community impact, we served over 2,000 hours in our community. More than 4,600 people were served through our impact center. Globally, more than 70 people served on an international mission trip to six different countries last year. Sharing Jesus, hundreds of spiritual decisions were made. 80 people were publicly baptized. Spiritual growth, nearly 1,000 people were in our small groups, our discipleship tracks being discipled last year. Multiplication, we gave away $60,000 in multiplying ministry scholarships to kids going into Bible college and going into full-time ministry. Here's what you need to understand. For those of you who shared your grapes last year, thank you. Thank you. It is our goal to squeeze every last drop of fruit from our church and the impact you are having so that the sweet spot of Jesus in us and Jesus in our world stays fruitful. Amen? I don't know what God has said to your heart today. I'm sure some of you were challenged. Money is an uncomfortable thing to talk about. But it's a biblical thing to talk about. So just be open today and say, God, what's for me? What's for me, God? Do I have a stuff problem? Do I have a security problem? Do I have a stewardship? Disappointment? Struggle? Help me. We're going to close today by taking communion. So I'm going to ask our ushers to step into place as we think about the fruit of our lives. We think about the blood of Jesus that was shed and represented in that glass of wine on Passover Sunday. As our ushers distribute the communion, our reflection questions will be on the screen and you'll be able to just take a little spiritual journey in your own heart. Just reviewing your generosity where it was, where it is, where it needs to go. And then when our ushers are done passing the communion elements and everyone has been served, I'll come lead us to take communion together and then we'll dismiss. So just before we disperse the elements. Can we pray together quick? God, thank you for the fruitfulness of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Thank you that he was willing to share the life you had put in him so that we might have it as well. As we look at this final stage of thriving spiritually, God, may we live in the grape zone and may we share the grapes that you're causing to grow in our life through our walk with you. Help us just talk to us, work in our hearts as we review these questions and prepare to take communion today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, you can go ahead and pass the elements.